Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for Book 9, Chapter 1. What light is shed on Tolstoy's attitude towards war in the beginning of this chapter? Based on this chapter, what do you make of Tolstoy's view of predestination? For instance, this quote, Each man lives for himself, uses his freedom to achieve his personal goals, and feels with his whole being that right now he can or cannot do such and such an action. But as soon as he does it, this action, committed at a certain moment in time, becomes irreversible and makes itself the property of history, in which is has, it has not a free but a predestined significance. Using this quote and the rest of the chapter for justification, how do you think Tolstoy looks at predestination? How has he implemented this view into the story so far. What is gained from setting the story in a time of conflict? Obviously, some of the characters are involved in the war, but many of the ones heavily followed aren't directly impacted by the war, at least not so far. What is Tolstoy accomplishing through the back and forth of war talk and home talk? There we go, predestination. Kara Kikar says, The phrase that I liked is to perform for the hive life, that is to say for history, Whatever had to be performed. Hive life gave me visions of bees and ants, all acting independently in a way that can only be understood as part of the whole. I totally understand that view, but I reject it as true. In my own life, I bought a house in a certain neighborhood and started a family. These were seemingly individual choices, but coincidentally, three members of my very small university program, less than 30 people, moved into the same neighborhood, one on my same street. We were not friends or even in touch until we ran into each other again. Sure, it might be coincidence, but I think it more likely that the forces in our lives, when we got our jobs, how long it takes to save for a house, which neighbourhoods were affordable when we wanted to start a family, these all are shared experiences that's hard to break from. We were in the hive life. It's hmm, an interesting perspective. We each think of ourselves as individuals, but that's an illusion, says Karakikas. We all understand ourselves and what is possible for us in relation to others and the world around us. Yeah, if you uh, think of us as part of a hive, that's how um, that's how we are flowed forward from one place to another. That's how we are shepherded from one place to the next. That's how marketing works, right? They treat us like a hive, not as individuals. Is that right? I don't know. Economics, I meant to say, not marketing. Let me get that, says, Wow, I really enjoyed the change of pace of this chapter. So much to unpack here. Four Lost Souls in a Bowl says, I particularly appreciated Tolstoy's listing of all the different crimes that take place during war. Yeah, that was good. Uh, followed by his comment that these crimes would never be brought to the justice in a courtroom, nor would those who committed them ever considered them crimes at all. Wap a wap away says, Finally, I've been looking forward to this, and judging by this chapter, this part of the book isn't going to be glossed over like previous war chapters for the most part. I just hope we get more personal viewpoints from the war, like when Rostov charged towards the enemy and when he visited the hospital, rather than general troop movements. Those are definitely one thing that visual media does better than a book. I also hope we get a, get to hear civilian perspectives too. 
Yep, I think we're going to war, people. I think we're going to war. Let's read chapter 2 and find out. It's a bit of a longie, so let's get stuck into it. On the 29th of May, Napoleon left Dresden, where he had spent three weeks surrounded by a court that included princes, dukes, kings, and even an emperor. Before leaving, Napoleon showed favour to the emperor, kings and princes who had deserved it, reprimanded the kings and princes with whom he was dissatisfied, presented pearls and diamonds of his own, that is, which he had taken from other kings, to the empress of Austria, and having, as his historian tells us, tenderly embraced the empress Mary Louise, who regarded him as her husband, though he had left another wife in Paris, left her grieved by the parting which he she seemed hardly able to bear. Though the diplomatists still firmly believed in the possibility of peace and worked zealously to that end, and though the Emperor Napoleon himself wrote a letter to Alexander calling him Monsieur Monfrey, old, uh, and sincerely assured him that he did not want war and would always love and honour him, yet he set off to join his army and at every station gave fresh orders to accelerate the movement of his troops from west to east, he went in a travelling coach with six horses, surrounded by pages, aides de camp, and an escort along the road to Posen, Thorn, Danzig, and Konigsberg. At each of these towns, thousands of people met him with excitement and enthusiasm. The army was moving from west to east, and relays of six horses carried him in the same direction. On the 10th of June old style, coming up with the army, he spent the night in apartments prepared for him on the estate of a Polish count in the Wilkowiski forest. Next day, overtaking the army, he went in a carriage to the Niemen, and changing into a Polish uniform, he drove to the riverbank in order to select a place for the crossing, seeing on each side some Cossacks, Le Cossacks, and the wide spreading steeps in the midst of which lay the holy city of Moscow, Moscow, la ville sainte, the capital of a realm such as the Scythia, into which Alexander the Great had marched. Napoleon unexpectedly, and contrary alike to strategic and diplomatic considerations, ordered an advance, and the next day his army began to cross the Niemen. Early in the morning on the 12th of June he came out of his tent, which was pitched that day on the step, steep left flank of the Niemen, and looked through a spyglass at the streams of his troops pouring out of the Vilkaviski forest and flowing over the three bridges thrown across the river. The troops, knowing of the emperor's presence, were on the lookout for him, and when they caught sight of a figure in an overcoat and a cocked hat standing apart from his suite in front of his tent on the hill, they threw up their caps and shouted, Viva le Emperor! and one after another poured in a ceaseless stream out of the vast forest that had concealed them and separating, flowed on and on by the three bridges to the other side. Now we'll go into action. Oh, when he takes it in hand himself, things get hot by heaven. There he is, vive le emperor. So these are the steppes of Asia. It's a nasty country all the same. Au revoir, bish, bish. I'll keep the best place in Moscow for you. Au revoir, good luck. Did you see the emperor? Vive le emperor. If they make me governor of India, Gerard, I'll make you minister of Kashmir. That's settled. Viva le Emperor. Hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. The Cossacks, those rascals, see how they run. Viva le Emperor. There he is. Do you see him? I've seen him twice as I see you now. 
The little corporal I saw him give the cross to one of the veterans, Viva the Emperor. Came the voices of men, old and young, of most diverse characters and social positions. On the faces of all was one common expression of joy at the commencement of the long-expected campaign, and of rapture and devotion to the man in the grey coat who was standing on the hill. On the 13th of June, a rather small thoroughbred Arab horse was brought to Napoleon. He mounted it and rode at a gallop to one of the bridges over the Neman, deafened continually by incessant and rapturous acclamations, which he evidently endured only because it was impossible to forbid the soldiers to express their love of him by such shouting. But the shouting, which accompanied him everywhere, disturbed him and distracted him from the military cares, that had occupied him from the time he joined the army. He rode across one of the swaying pontoon bridges to the farther side, turned sharply to the left and galloped in the direction of Kovno, preceded by enraptured mounted chasseurs of the guard who, breathless with delight, galloped ahead to clear a path for him through the troops. On reaching the broad river Vilia, he stopped near a regiment of Polish Ulans stationed by the river, Vivat, shouted the Poles ecstatically, breaking their ranks and pressing against one another to see him. Napoleon looked up and down the river, dismounted and sat down on a log that lay on the bank. At a mute sign from him, a telescope was handed him which he rested on the back of a happy page who had run up to him, and he gazed at the opposite bank. Then he became absorbed in a map laid out on the logs. Without lifting his head, he said something, and two of his aides-de-camp galloped off to the Polish Uhlans. What, what did he say, was heard in the ranks of the Polish Uhlans when one of the aides-de-camp rode up to them. The order was to find a ford and to cross the river. The colonel of the Polish Uhlans, a handsome old man, flushed and fumbling in his speech from excitement, asked the aide-de-camp whether he would be permitted to swim the river with his Uhlans instead of seeking a ford. In evident fear of refusal, like a boy asking for permission to get on a horse, he begged to be allowed to swim across the river before the Emperor's eyes. The aide-de-camp replied that probably the Emperor would not be displeased at this excess of zeal. As soon as the aide-de-camp had said this, the old moustached officer, with happy face and sparkling eyes, raised his sabre, shouted vivat, and commanding the Ulans to follow him, spurred his horse and galloped into the river. He gave an angry thrust to his horse, which had grown restive under him and plunged into the water, heading for the deepest part where the current was swift. Hundreds of Ulans galloped in after him. It was cold and uncanny in the rapid current in the middle of the stream and the Ulans caught hold of one another as they fell off their horses. Some of the horses were drowned and some of the men. The others tried to swim on, some in the saddle, and some clinging to their horses' manes. They tried to make their way forward to the opposite bank and, though there was a ford, one third of a mile away, were proud that they were swimming and drowning in this river under the eyes of the man who sat on the log and was not even looking at what they were doing. When the aide-de-camp, having returned and choosing an opportune moment, ventured to draw the emperor's attention to the devotion of the Poles to his person, the little man in the grey overcoat got up and, having summoned Bertia, began pacing up and down the bank with him giving him instructions and occasionally glancing disapprovingly at the drowning Ulans who distracted his attention. For him it was no new conviction that his presence in any part of the world, from Africa to the steppes of Muscovoy alike, was enough to dumbfound people and impel them to self, 
to insane self-oblivion. He called for his horse and rode to his quarters. Some 40 Uhlans were drowned in the river, though boats were sent to their assistance. The majority struggled back to the bank from which they had started. The colonel and some of his men got across and with difficulty clambered out on the further bank. And as soon as they had got out in their soaked and streaming clothes, they shouted vivat and looked ecstatically at the spot where Napoleon had been, but where he no longer was, and at that moment considered themselves happy. That evening, between issuing one order that the forged Russian paper money prepared for use in Russia should be delivered as quickly as possible, and another that a section should be shot, on whom a letter containing information about the orders to the French army had been found, Napoleon also gave instructions that the Polish colonel, who had needlessly plunged into the river, should be enrolled in the Legion d'Honneur, of which Napoleon was himself the head. Cus vult perdia dominant. Those whom God wishes to destroy, he drives mad. Alright, there we go. There's another chapter for you. Bit of Napoleon action. Cool, cool, cool. Alright, have your say about the chapter on the subreddit, and I will see you tomorrow.